60% of the time, the customer just goes, I don't know, you figure it out. I got stuff to do with my life. And that's very real. Like it's, and we assume as business people, we want to give them a 50 page, get everything right, line by line, skew by skew. Yeah. They don't actually want that. They, they're paying us for our expertise and know that'll be built right. Growing a business requires a holistic approach that extends beyond sales and marketing. This approach needs alignment among people, processes, and technologies. So if you're a business owner, operations, or finance leader looking to learn growth strategies from your peers and competitors, you're tuned into the right podcast. Welcome to the WBS Podcast, where scalable growth using business systems is our number one priority. Now, here is your host, Sam Gupta. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the WBS Podcast. I'm Sam Gupta, your host and principal consultant at Digital Transformation Consulting Firm, Elevate IQ. When you start your business, you are going to do everything in your power to survive. You might sell anything and everything to anyone and everyone who has cash. But as you grow, the number of decisions that your team will have to make daily will grow exponentially as well. The more products you maintain, the higher the number of decisions you need to make daily, which causes frustration and chaos. This frustration will grow within your employees, but it will be equally frustrating for your customers. In today's episode, we have our guest, Darren Mitchell, who discusses the challenges and strategies of people, processes, technology, and products at each stage of his growth through inflection points. He also talks about how simplifying product mix and messaging could help streamline the sales process and position you as an expert. Finally, he discusses how custom platforms and inflexible solutions might result in organizations switching to asynchronous planning and ad hoc process solutions maintained on error-prone spreadsheets. Let me introduce Darren to you. Over the last 20 years, Darren grew a very successful manufacturing business. He developed a worldwide marketing system with partners in six continents, patented intellectual property, a global supply chain, and profits, 10 times the industry average. Most impressive, he did it from a small remote island in Canada, not adjacent to the customers or supply chain. He used social media innovation and resourcefulness to create a new model for business. Darren has recently ventured into consulting, showing other manufacturers how to become a global niche, strategically growing the business while increasing profits. With that, let's get to the conversation. Hey, Darren. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Sam. Great to be here. Of course, my pleasure. And I am super excited to dig into your background and find out how you built value over the period of time in your business. Just to kick things off, do you want to start with your personal story and your current focus, Darren? Yeah, my uh, my personal story is uh, grew a global manufacturing business on Prince Edward Island. And for some of your listeners who may not know, Prince Edward Island is a population of 140,000 people. Yeah. And we live on an island, uh, depending on where you're listening, either uh, next to Nova Scotia or in New Brunswick. And sometimes yeah. I just tell people we're next to Maine. 
And uh, yeah, grew a, grew a global manufacturing business here for the last uh, 22 years. And I recently sold that business just before Christmas. And now I am helping other manufacturers add value and grow their businesses. Okay, love your background. So we are going to dig into all of that. And it's going to be so fascinating to go over your journey. But before we do that, we have one of the standard questions. And that is going to be your perspective on business growth, Dan. Okay, perfect. So what gets me so excited about growth is, are we doing the right activities that set us aside from the competitors? Are we doing the things necessary that establish us as a niche in the minds of the marketplace? And are we, do we know enough people? And I, 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 every company that I work with so far, their mindset has been towards growth is we can't grow. And yeah. I'll, I'll start asking questions as to why. And the challenge is, is they're taking their information from the last six people they met. And yeah. the last six people they met are usually their dealers or their distributors or yeah. the six big customers that they have. Yeah. And usually that conversation is how do we be cheaper, faster, higher quality? And yeah. for me, that's that's pretty discouraging because yes, we need to build those things into our business. But if where I live in the manufacturing world, if the only thing you're doing is racing to the bottom, stop that race immediately. Just because you got it out in two seconds and you shaved a point off where you were yesterday, yeah. you're, you're you're still competing against everybody else. And I like becoming more efficient and more quality and more flow and more process, but those are only tickets to the game. They're not usually leadership strategies. And there's a huge difference in where I where I live these days in what's a leadership strategy and what's a management strategy. Yeah. And I yeah. think too often those two things get very confused that we think sometimes we can manufacture our way out of a situation. And you can become a good manufacturer or a good business, but you uh, you need to put a lot of effort into the other side of the business. And just knowing six distributors and taking your cue from them is usually a bad idea. Yeah, completely agree overall with your assessment. So let's go back in your years, uh, the first five years. So typically the pillars that you just described are going to be the people, process, technology, and the product. Those are all extremely important. Some are going to be more important than the others, and some are going to be important just because a company may be good at certain things. They might not be as good at the other things. So in your first five years, what were your people, process, technology, and product landscape looked And what was the value when you, let's say, if you were to sell this business in your first five years, what would be the results? I would have owed a lot of people a lot of money if I tried to sell it within the first five years. (laughs) Uh, It took took a little while to get going. Yeah. Um, But one of the, um, our first challenges was, is that we were being new and you have to pay your bills. We were trying to be too many things to too many people. Okay. And I, I think it's admirable to keep your cash flow positive, but there's a challenge in it. Again, when you're trying to be all things to all people is there's a lot of spots you can lose margin when you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off. But I think any new business goes through that phase. And one of the most impactful days we had is we sat down and created a menu yeah. of our highest margin products. 
Yeah. And these were the ones that had the most amount of innovation. They were the most complex things. They were the things that our competitors weren't really doing. And all we did is straight out of a restaurant, we created a menu and said, these are going to be the products that we produce. And and in my case, it was live bottom trailers that have a Uh, it's a trailer that goes down the, the, the road hauling material. It's similar to a dump trailer, but it has a conveyor system in it that makes it innovative compared to other things on the market. Um, and that's all we put on our menu. And we said, this has to be the focus of the, uh, you know, the 10 hours that we have in the day to become successful. It has to be focused on this. And, and that's what we focused on. So we, we aligned our manufacturing, we aligned our supply chain, we aligned our purchasing, we aligned our marketing efforts, we aligned our messaging. That was a big day for us when we literally put that menu together. The frustrating part was I had to stop doing business with certain people and, and they were saying, you know, is my money no good to you? And me going, yeah. uh, I really need your money right now but I can't keep doing this in an efficient way and being true to my company. So that was a difficult day for us, not just coming up with the menu. So we were all eating off the same page. It was also difficult because we literally had to stop doing certain activities with certain customers that were never going to get us to where we wanted to go. It would have taken us to a space. We were competing against other companies who were doing it much better than we ever could. So that was a, that was a big day for us putting that menu together and having the courage to say there's clearly some things we need to stop doing here. Yeah, so describe the menu a bit more. So I know that you test on one of the products, but which is the more complex product and which were not as complex. So describe those products a bit more. How many different products were there? Who you were selling to? <clears throat> and also describe the processes and people aspect, how many people did you have at that time? How your departments were structured? Can you touch a little bit more on that? So uh, I remember our first Christmas, we all sat at the same picnic table. And okay. by, the, by the time I left, there was close to 150 people. So we, we had to order a few more picnic tables. But in the beginning, there was a lot of, not a lot, there was a few people wearing a lot of hats. Yeah. And so what we did was the menu. There's, there's a very, if you want to onboard new customers, there's a certain point in that customer building relationship, you have to limit the choices they have. And I remember I was in, I think it was Toronto, and yeah. I had brought one of my engineers with me, and the engineer pulled out a notepad and said, what kind of steel do you want? What kind of tires do you want? What kind yeah. of lighting do you want? What kind of... <laughs> I remember yeah. sitting in the meeting going, I have to get this guy to stop talking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The customer was going, I want uh, good tires. Yeah. <laughs> and I went, oh my God, this is so uncomfortable. So one, I never brought that engineer with me again, who was desperately trying to be helpful. But yeah. the customer's mind is, I want a bit of choice, but I want to expect that you you have thought you're the doctor you yeah. have to consider all the consequences on my behalf and i think that companies today and some of the ones that i'm dealing with are almost trying to be too helpful in the amount of features or offerings that they have because i find that 
60% of the time, the customer just goes, I don't know, you figure it out. I got stuff to do with my life. And that's very real. Like it's, and we assume as business people, we want to give them a 50 page, get everything right. Line by line, skew by skew. Yeah. They don't actually want that. They, they're paying us for our expertise and know that it'll be, it'll be built right. So that was, that was a big day in the flow of the business that we started managing the customer's expectations and the customer offering like way out front. So when my spec sheet that I would give to a customer would have, you can have your choice of one of six items. Yeah. And whatever item that you pick, you can have your choice of, I think there was like seven options in total. So six products, seven options, and that's what we limited ourselves to. And when someone came along and said, I want something totally different, that got fed into a different part of the business. So we, I, what I call the 75-25 rule, 75% of what we do is standardized, 25% of what we do is the oddball stuff. I would have a special team set up to send that 25% oddball to, but the 75%, we knew we could set up bin locations. We could set up min max systems. We knew based on production schedules being a minimum of three months out, we can control the supply chain within the factory and we could build the cells in the factory for what the promises that were made. But if you had some months that we put out, eight trailers and some months you put out 25 trailers that is a massive swing yeah in in terms of cash and product development and process so again it we we had to almost manufacture the sale to meet a growing manufacturing business and what i couldn't do is run out and sell you know 100 trailers per month I actually had to make sure that I was just always one step ahead of the manufacturing process. So again, we could set up our Kanban system. We could set up proper jigs and fixtures. And I knew if I was going to get that one 25% other order, I could shove it to a different line. It was very important for controlling the information within the factory. And again, not having our purchasing team ahead of our engineering, our engineering team behind sales. You literally have to make sure that everybody's getting the right amount of information at the right time. Otherwise, it just creates a lot of frustration in-house. But the biggest thing for us was carving out that 25% so you didn't have that start-stop within the business going, "Uh, this is a weird thing. I've never seen it before. Because in the manufacturing setting, if you lose a day on one thing, it just sends a log jam through the rest of the, the process. And again, pick a simple item like, per- well, not simple, pick one item like purchasing. If yeah. you're missing one skew for one product, that's 100% not done. And in my case, I wasn't collecting $100,000 because I'm missing one skew on one product. So you have to be very, very careful how you manage that as you grow, that you manage the customer's expectations with what the capacity is of your facility. But I always, in my head, had to be, the customer expectations always had to be one step ahead of the rest of the facility. Because if I let my manufacturing process guide what we could not couldn't do, they became complacent. 
and they would say good is good enough. So I was always had the sales one step ahead of and driving that part of the manufacturing. Because like I said, if our lead times became too short, we actually became more inefficient because people became complacent. If the lead times were way, you know, uh, eight months ahead, we, I guaranteed every time they were eight months ahead, we messed up those orders. And you're going, how can we mess up an order that was eight months out? Yeah, <laughs> We yeah. had eight months to plan for it. Yeah. So there's a sweet spot in there and it's out of respect for both parties because your manufacturing system, again, has to be just always just trying to catch up to where your your sales and marketing are. So that's that's something we use to grow in our early days, once we understood what our product offering clearly was and how we could wow the customer and most yeah. importantly, do it in a profitable way. Yeah. So interesting thoughts there, but I mean, I'm still trying to figure out the product mix here. So in your case, you did mention that initially you focused on the higher profit margin products, and then you had the situation where you had many different options. And sometimes the customers were getting confused because of those options. So did you simply simplify the configuration of these products? Or did you have completely different products from your trailers? And then you had to just kill them off because they were not your core value proposition. So are we talking about just the different configuration of trailers or did you have some other products that you had to kill? We had a lot of other products in the early days of like material handling products that would go around the trailer. We had to do away with those right away because they didn't fit within our system and they were lower margin and a higher amount of effort. So again, if we wanted to streamline the factory, we had to focus on that one niche product, which was the live bottom trailer and making sure that all systems were built around that. So basically what I did with the quote is I went to, I started with North America and I would say, listen, in the state of Michigan, what legal configurations are available? And they would say, well, you're, you're technically allowed three. And I went, great. Those are the only three offerings we are ever going to come up with Michigan. So basically at that point in time, now that we know what the legal configurations are, because we have to conform, what options do you have? You have paint, you have tarp, um, (laughs) like very simple things like order items we would bring in and, and put on the unit. And again, how do we, where can we get away that we're limiting the most amount uh, of offerings but giving the most amount of customer that they can customize. Where's that sweet spot? Yeah, so some interesting comments there. So when you talk about these legal configurations in Michigan, so yeah, initially you were focusing on a lot more. So obviously you were not selling those because they would not be legal. So who is going to buy those? But you were pairing those products because you had those. So I'm a bit lost there overall, why you were carrying some of the configurations that were not legally acceptable to begin with so basically what we do is we is we grew by province to province okay and then we grew state to state okay so in the minds of places like ontario yeah you're only allowed one two basically today you're only allowed three configurations in ontario there's a fourth but basically it's three configurations yeah we knew when we set up our dealer network we knew when we were selling direct we could tell the customer you're going to get a choice of one of three things because we already figured out the math for you once we got ontario figured out with what the best product offering was 
we moved to the next state, which was basically Michigan, and did the exact same thing. So how do we standardize as much as possible that, again, we're back in the sweet spot and growing the business? Okay, amazing. Love it. So let's move to the next five years. So what were the challenges there? I know that you grew from the state to state, so I'm pretty sure your product offering grew as well because you would require some additional configurations there. So tell us what were the next five years like and what were the challenges there? I'll start on the the challenges. Definitely was internally, you always, the more you grow, the more cash you need. So we were always heavily managing our cash. And again, one of the, I think one of the opportunities that I had is that to legally put the trailer on the road, you had to have your, uh, your Nibis to register it at your local office. So what I would do, I would play that card very, very hard with whether it's my dealers or the uh, direct customers. And I would say, listen, if you want, I, I don't really care a lot about the steel, what I care about is the legal registration card. It's a vehicle. If you want it, you, you kind of have to transfer me the money today. And I would work very, very hard on that front, making sure I was being a good partner. So I would end up billing them 15 days prior to the trailer being born. We would send them pictures of their products being built to make sure we were building good rapport. But yeah. they knew that when that trailer was born, so to speak, they had to transfer the money. So we, uh, we had a system in place that we were building them, uh, billing them 15 days prior to the, uh, to the unit being delivered. And the reason was, is if you think about it, it's anywhere from a hundred to $150,000. You, it's very difficult for a manufacturing business to grow when you're being somebody else's bank. So I was always very careful at managing the cash flow upfront. You never want to see your receivables get too high because there's opportunity that comes along. It could put a pretty good stranglehold on you. And again, that's one of the challenges associated with growth is always making sure that you, you have the cash available to do that. Team lead training in the business was uh, always a challenge. I remember actually having to fire one of my managers who looked at me one day square in the eye and he said, when is enough enough with you? Yeah. And the room, <laughs> and the, and the room went very, very quiet. And I said, I'll let you know. And after the meeting, we had a, we had to stay back. And I said, obviously, this is not a place for you anymore. And someone who I considered a friend for many years, yeah. the business had grown to a point where he just said, I can't, I can't handle this anymore. I was good. I was really good when we were at the 2 million mark. Okay. And now I have to make, you know, you're asking me to make a, like a hundred decisions a day, Darren. And I'm yeah. going, but th- this is where we're at. You know, when you're at the 50 million mark, you have to make more decisions when you were at the 2 million mark. Well, I don't like it. And that's a very difficult day for when you're developing your teams because some people will not be able to grow with you. And and that was always a challenge for me because I come from a very small town. Like I said, there's 60 in the town where I was, there's 61 people and having 151 employees, you're you're pretty much it. And, uh, you know, these are people I still see at the grocery store every weekend. And, and it's, it's a challenge because you want to maintain your humanity. But on the other yeah. hand, I still work for the business as well. And I have to make sure that I'm giving it its best every single day. 
So those were some internal challenges that we had. Yeah. And externally, I hope one of the most clever things that we ever did is we used YouTube like there was no tomorrow. Yeah. And I was producing videos for YouTube since YouTube basically came out and living our product offering and who we were, we yeah. wanted to embed that in the minds of our customers to streamline the process. So they knew by the time we met with them, who we were, what we were, what we were offering, what they can expect from us. And that worked out very, very well growing across North America because it built trust before we ever got in the door. As an aside, in our middle years, what happened to us is we started getting phone calls from Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Middle East, from other trailer manufacturing saying, hey, we would like to partner with you. So one of the innovative things we did is we not only started selling our products all over the world because yeah. people seem to know less like us, trust us before they met us, but we use that as an activity to build licensing agreements with other manufacturers. So in our middle years, one of the things we did is we built a franchising model for manufacturing, which I don't think has done a lot today. Yeah. Um, and basically, you could have bought our product and you can still do it today. You can buy it in New Zealand, Japan, Middle East, Europe, uh, built by our partners in those communities. And what it did for me is I didn't have to walk into the Netherlands and build a $100 million facility and compete against everybody else who was already there. All I had to do was find a manufacturer that was there and partner with them because they were suffering because their machines were only running at 60%. So again, it was, it seemed in our, in our growth middle years, that was a really good way to grow the business, which was kind of exciting because if you think about it, our rate of return on licensing is a thousand percent. And the only thing we had to do was give our brain power and our marketing. Uh, yeah. to a company who considered us to be a partner. And that grew the brand on a global level. Okay, so let's talk about the decision-making that you said and the training issues related to the growth. So when you grow from $2 million to $50 million, obviously the number of decisions that your team leaders need to make are going to be more. But you know, sometimes the decisions are going to be there because you don't really have, number one, the systemizing of the processes so that your systems are going to make those decisions as opposed to people making them. So what were your systems like? What are the examples of some of these decisions that these people had to make? Can you provide some examples? Yeah, and, and honestly, I really hope your listeners don't think I have the answer to this one because it was just a forever challenge for me. And okay. I don't want anybody to think I'm an expert at answering this, but I can share with you my what I went through. Again, some of the, my management team I had to replace. So we actually brought managers, seasoned managers from other companies that were a little larger than us to help us grow that side of the business. Yeah. And in terms of uh, decision making, we spent a lot of time on that 75-25 rule. What can we ca continually carve out of the business that's odd that may be next year's big design? Yeah. So what is a leadership issue? That's on the 25%. What's a management issue? We spent a lot of time on that. The other thing that we did is we ran, we ran a lot of min maxes. Yeah. And I love 
Uh, I know it's not the most efficient way, um, yeah. but I love min maxes because what it did for my management team is that we were forced to ask the question. And most people were like, oh, we never thought of that before. And if you're, and yeah. I would challenge them going, you know, once we look at lead times, volumes, yeah. where the supplier is actually holding the material, those things in the fact that, you know, we could get stuck because uh, if the wind blows and they close the Confederation bridge, we can't stop production because our materials are on the other side. It yeah. forced us to ask many of those questions. So we spent a lot of time on min-max systems and a lot of time on Kanban. I was very adamant in our factory that if I had a preference between hiring Red Seal welders and the awesome people of Tim Hortons, I would take the awesome people at Tim Hortons any day. Yeah. And for me, what it meant was we could now scale because yeah. We could attract the uh, the right people to the business, and it meant we created an environment for them where, in a relatively short time, they could be successful within the organization. And it's one of the things that helped us scale as a business. And what I would do with my leadership team is have them do things like create the jigs and fixtures so we could take the newer employees and allow them to be productive on a regular basis. So... Jigs and fixtures, min-max min systems, Kanbans, all those things were very, very helpful for us to remove decision-making that didn't actually need to be decision-making. If you have a good system in place, it, it takes conversations out of the mix. And I always would hang around the factory and I would see what people were talking about. And yeah. whatever they were talking about is usually where we were lacking a, in a system. Exactly. That's a great comment right there. So if something is driving the conversation, that's where you have the opportunity for improvement, I guess. So on that note, let's move to the next five years. So we have covered the first uh, 10 years so far, right? So what were the next five years like? What were the challenges? And I don't know if you were more than 50 million at that point of time. So tell us what was the growth path like and what were the challenges? At that point in time, for the last couple of years, it was a lot of the systems, you know, we've uh, implemented an ERP system, okay. uh, which was challenging. I think we're actually still in the middle of implementing that system. And it was us, honestly, I, I think you would say becoming more professional. We added more people in our engineering department to get more complete bill of materials, which was yeah. very important implementing the ERP system, extremely important, and just developing, going back and fixing some of the things we didn't fix or, or we, we didn't even develop in the first place. Like even going back to the basics of how do we label all our bin locations? Yeah. Because if we don't do that, uh, the ERP forced us to go, shit. <laughs> we, yeah, yeah. We, we, missed, uh, we missed step two and perhaps yeah. step three. So... For the last couple of years, it was continuing to grow, but going back and I would say making the organization more professional along the way, adding those systems. And we, uh, we got into, we built another building that just, uh, another factory that just made parts components. Yeah. So one of the things we did is, oh yeah, that was, yeah, that's it. We separated the business into an assembly factory and yeah. the other factory was just parts manufacturing. And 
that parts manufacturing satisfied the assembly building. It was satisfying our dealer network with parts. It was selling parts to our licensees overseas. We would build containers filled with parts for them. And we were actually building parts for our competitors. We became their supplier. And I I think out of all the things that may be the one that I'm actually most proud of, of the business is that we became our competitor, one of, our competitor's biggest supplier. And I think for me, that was something I was extremely proud of. Instead of saying, listen, we don't want to fight with you. They actually seen us as a partner. And uh, yeah, I was pretty proud of that one. So, yeah, so- we diversified our, uh, our, um, our cash flow, And I think that was very important to the business that we were doing what we were good at, but we were finding new ways to help people and, and make money while doing it. Okay, so tell us the journey of the ERP system when you, let's say, started on that and you did mention that you are still in the middle of implementing that. So I don't know how long the timeline has been. So initially, obviously, you were making a lot of different decisions manually and that was really driving the chaos. And then finally, you figured out that, you know what, I need to get some sort of system. Otherwise, I cannot really scale. I cannot grow. And my people are not going to be happy here. But going from that point A to point B is extremely hard for someone that has never done this in their life. So in your case, describe some of the challenges. What were the initial, and I don't know how how long is the timeline. So maybe how was the first three months, six months, nine months and how did you overcome those challenges so i wasn't in it that much sam we were just doing it when i uh when i sold my business okay um so i i don't i don't want to give your viewers uh the expectation that i can give them too much expertise our biggest challenge was uh, step one as a manufacturer what the heck is erp (laughs) yeah yeah For, for many of us you're going i don't even know what that means yeah. Uh, secondly, was if we were to look at ERP, how do you know which one is best? Because as an owner, I was terrified that we would be purchasing a system that six months into it, somebody else would say, oh, you bought the wrong one. Yeah. And yeah. you're going, ah, hell, we're stuck. <laughs> we're yeah. stuck with some, well, we're, we, oh, crap, we kind of, oh, well, we're in it now. Let's keep going. And the biggest challenge for us was understanding why we were doing it. Because if we didn't understand why we were doing it, I couldn't get the buy-in from the management team to understand how we could fully utilize it going forward. And we were at the point of uncovering all the things that we had not done or made mistakes on leading up to that point. So that's that's where we were at. And like I said, going back to something as simple as having and having a proper labeling system for your bin locations, yeah. uh, we were at that phase. Okay, interesting. So let's talk about the, the selling phase. So you build business from your perspective and now other people are coming in and they are looking at your business and they are putting dollar mark. Sometimes that could be very emotional moment in, in my opinion. But what were some of the shocking moments for you when they were putting these dollar mark on the value for your organization? What were some of the realizations that you felt that, you know what, I wasted my two years doing this and you guys are putting zero dollar on this one. So so tell us a little bit more about 
how that process was when you sold your business. So here's a big moment that I had to realize as an owner is nobody wants to pay me for how much I suffered in 20 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you're, and you're going, come on, it's got to be worth something. <laughs> that, was, that was a hard moment because I knew the times when I slept on the airport floor. I, I knew all the, the, the soccer games that I missed with the kids. And, uh, and you know what? Fair enough. Nobody... That that's just part of the lonely journey for yeah. for entrepreneurs. But the flip side is, I realized that the same the same things that I seen as valuable in how I grew the business are coincidentally the same things that any investor or PE firm or strategic partner is going to seeing you is the same things that you should be doing every day. People are going to look at your EBITDA at the end of the day. So if yeah. you're doing this and you're not making money, uh, shut up. <laughs> like yeah. you, you can tell a long-winded story, but the tail of the tape is cash. So yeah. they're going to look very, very hard at cash. The other thing they're going to look at is, do you have, is there anything completely unique about your business that's going to be preventing someone else from sneaking in and stealing your customers after the sale. Yeah. So for us, our, our uniqueness on the innovation is we had global intellectual property. And at the time I had uh, applied for global intellectual property, I had to ask myself, why am I spending $100,000? I'm not even quite sure it's actually worth it. But in the end, it brought it did bring value to the table. So we had the innovation, we had the the EBITDA, and the last thing was was they were I think they were floored with our distribution, and we had a very unique distribution system that was not only how we built our network of dealers, how we built our direct sales, how we built our licensees, that brought value to the table, and. Uh, I think though, and the fact that, you know, we worked hard at branding ourselves as the cream, the niche, that global niche product that brought some value to the table as well, because they knew they weren't investing in something that was, you know, mid range. It's okay. We'll compete on volume. So they were buying what they also viewed as a premium product. But again, if even I hadn't sold the business, they're generally looking for the same things that we as entrepreneurs should be building in our businesses anyway, whether you choose to sell or not. Okay, so interesting perspective. So we are going to go back to the negotiation phase. And you made a comment that you know nobody really realizes that you are spending 20 years of the hard work. And your perspective as an entrepreneur is always going to be, hey, I am selling my business. Can I get 20x of revenue? Okay. <laughs> and your investor are, investors are going to say, hey, can we give you 2x? <laughs> is that okay? So what was that negotiation like? Did you always feel you got something what it was worth, I can almost guarantee that that would not be true. That That is never true. You are going to be having five x more expectations than what you are going to get. So tell us the negotiation phase. What were some of the setbacks where you had the most setback overall in the value? So negotiation phase went fairly quickly. It was just, you know, one of the challenging parts in the I don't think your average, the average person would even think about it. I never did, but 
things got held up during the negotiations because you have this big emotional ride of yeah. we're doing a level three environmental assessment. And you're going, what the hell is that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, you want to make sure that we weren't doing bad things over the years. Okay, okay. So for me, part of that emotional roller coaster was all of those check marks that needed to be met. And, uh, you know, you get really excited. You have the big meeting. Everybody seems to be on the same page. And literally things go quiet for a month because an engineering firm is digging test holes in your backyard. So those were uh, those were the moments that I remember of, man, I shook hands yesterday and it feels like I'm literally stalled out today. So, yeah, those were part of it. I'm actually very pleased with the process. I think it worked out well. The only thing that I if you really caught me off guard in my private moments, could I have got this thing to $200 million? And to this day, that's probably that quiet thought in my head is I was pretty excited about this unique recipe that we developed. Yeah. But the flip side is, is I have to also, when I'm having those quiet moments talking to myself, what if I had failed? What if something horrific had to come along? What if my health had to change? Yeah. And for me, I look back on it and said, you know what, this is what we always talk about in business. You know, you actually build something that had value to sell. And that's kind of where I'm, I sit some days in my quiet moments going on one hand going, yep, yeah, you did the right thing. You hooked up with the right people. They're going to take this thing, you know, to wherever they're going to take it to. And the other half is going, you could have got it to 200 million. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's a fight in my head, but I think that's just who I am. And, uh, and I'm pretty driven towards that kind of stuff. I love growth and not just growth for the sake of growth. I love growth for profit. So finding very creative ways in the business to grow. I love doing that stuff. Okay, amazing. So what could you do differently, let's say, if you were to build this again, the same company, same space? Not today, obviously, going back in time. <laughs> if you were to build this, how would you approach it differently? That's tough because hindsight's twenty twenty. I would, one of the big lessons that I learned was, is that we pay a lot of people for expertise because we sometimes put them up on a pedestal. Yeah. I realized going through this process that, you know, a lot of, you can do a lot of things within your business today that you don't have to wait for other people who you've put up on that pedestal. And I think there was times that we probably mo could have moved a little quicker than we did. You know, we were aggressive, but sometimes we were waiting for other people to make decisions. And I wish I could go back on some of those and talk to that younger me who doesn't have a gray beard and say, you know, you know, in your, you know, in your belly, you know what the right answer is. And every time I hesitated and I started to make logical decisions, it never worked out for me. Because there was something in my gut that said, you know what, this is either a good person to deal with or this is not the right person to deal with. And I wish I could go back to my younger self and go, you got this because you're also the one who lives with the consequences. I think that's what I would have done, you know, myself in this situation. But other than that, I'm very proud with the way we developed. You know, we we had larger margins than our competitors who yeah. owned their supply chain. We had larger margins than our competitors who were next to the customers. And we did it from an island. And I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. Okay, amazing. Love it. Do you have any last minute closing thoughts? A couple of closing thoughts that I would have for you and your listeners are, is that 
work hard at creating your competitive advantages. And I mean anything you can do with creative stuff in your marketing, partnerships, adding tech to whatever you're doing, whether it's your process or your products. One of the last things I was involved with before I sold my company is I was adding sensors to the trailer so the owners could manage their business from their phones while they were in Florida. And for me, that's really exciting because I'm becoming part of my customer's decision-making process. Anything you can do to work on your supply chain to create competitive advantages through there, extremely important. But the biggest thing I, I think I would share besides creating your competitive advantages for your listeners is, is that technology today, if you picture a continuum, at one end of the continuum is digital connection. So. Yeah how we send emails, how we run our ERP systems, how we market ourselves today. And the other end of the spectrum is you have to be the expert. So when I order something from Amazon today, I go on my phone, I hit a button, it's done. I say, thank you, Amazon, you took care of me. I'm excited to think I don't actually have to talk to someone. But anybody out there listening today who is in business, the other end of the spectrum is you better be the expert because that's going to give me the reason to pick up the phone and want to talk to you because you're offering something that nobody else can because you are the expert. The biggest challenge I think for business leaders today is you need to utilize that one end of the spectrum of how do we fully digitally connect whatever we can in a meaningful way. And on the other end of the spectrum, how do we only position ourselves as the experts? The scariest part for anybody today is the middle no longer exists on that continuum. It's pure waste. If you're not allowing me to digitally connect with you, I don't want to talk to you. If you are not the expert, I don't want to talk to you. And most companies today are saying, well, we're kind of in between. There is no more in between. And I think it's one of the frustrations that leaders have is they get frustrated with the digital stuff and they say, I don't like it. I don't like where the world's going. And literally can order something off of Alibaba in the next six seconds. What you need to do is digitize everything you can that will add value to the business. And on the other hand, you need to be the expert for your partners because it's the only reason they're going to want to talk to you. Okay, amazing. And my personal takeaway is going to be just be expert of your number one product and process and be expert for your customers as well. Simplify the process for your customers. The simpler you make your product offerings, the easier it is going to be for them to be able to work with you. On that note, I really want to thank you for your time, Darren. This has been a very insightful episode. Awesome. Thank you, Sam. Keep up the great work. I cannot thank our guests enough for coming on the show, for sharing their knowledge and journey. I always pick up learnings from our guests and hopefully you learned something new today. If you want to learn more about Darren, head over to michellindustries.ca. It's M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L-I-N-D-U-S-T-R-I-E-S.ca. Links and more information will also be available in the show notes. If anything in this podcast resonated with you and your business, you might want to check other related episodes, including the interview with Brian Burke from SellYourMac.com who takes us through each infection points in his company's journey and how the need for people, process and technology changed at each step of his growth. Also, the interview with Jim Gitney from Growth50 
who shares his thoughts on each inflection point for companies and what they need to know to identify them and move to the next by making necessary changes. Also, don't forget to subscribe and spread the word among folks with similar backgrounds. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please review and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform or DM me on any social channels. I'll try my best to respond personally and make sure you get help. Thank you and I hope to catch you on the next episode of the WBS Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the WBS Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you never miss an episode. For more information on growth strategies for SMBs using ERP and digital transformation, check out our community at wbs.rocks. We'll see you next time.